With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you like listening to Warriors in Their Own Words, check out our other show, the Medal of Honor podcast. The link is in the show description. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Corporal Chuck Miller, Miller served as a tank loader and eventually a tank commander in World War II. I went in at 18, just just had turned 18. I went in in February of 43. Well, I joined the 3rd Armored at St. Jean de Day, France. I had, uh, in England, I had been in, in, in the replacement pool and I was detached to a 48th Ordnance Battalion and we waterproofed a bunch of tanks and took them to Normandy. I landed, before the 3rd Armor did, I landed nine days after D-Day. And we, uh, uh, I worked the beaches, uh, picking up ordnance supplies, driving a truck for about a couple of weeks. And then finally they got the replacement pool set up and I was pulled right out and sent. The 3rd Armored finally landed and had their first action and needed replacements. And I was about one of the first replacements. And that was in St. Jean today. Well, the, the tank commander initially orders all, everything, and generally it's over radio. You're wearing a helmet with earphones in it and intercom, and uh, you hear them uh, tell you, the, the gunner, to lay on a certain, certain, and he, he estimates the range everything, and uh, and then they tell what kind of ammo you want to use in the 75, whether it's HE or AP or APC, and uh, we load... The gun loader loads whatever shell they, they sell to put in there. And, uh, and then he lays on the target and fires. And, and then, of course, that shell comes out, and I have to, the journey, they, we'd start firing, uh, journey with, if it's firing at a, at a tank or, or anything that's armor. Uh, we use an AP or an APC. And, uh, so that I continue to load that shell. But, uh, and of course, the 30 caliber machine in is mainly just to get range, you know, get ranged or hitting uh, uh, the infantry or hanging around. And I had to keep loading that too. Well, the uh, keeping the, the, the tank uh, with whatever ammo you're going to use. And of course, then you, you're, if you get in a, in a real hot battle, you're going to have the turret floor covered with shells. And you have to, whenever you get a chance, you have to eject those out the porthole on the side. They have a porthole there. In uh, that early tank that I was in, that first tank, only had one hatch on top, and that was the tank commander's. So that, that was only, all three of you had to go out one hatch on the top. 
And so it, there was no way you could get rid of them except out the, out the porthole. But uh, we kept, you had to keep your ammo, ammo in order. And Jenny, if you ran out of the rack up your rack, you had to get it from either in the sponsor or from the, uh, the, the assistant driver had a rack behind his seat and he had to turn around and bring hand shells up to you through the, through the basket. They're fairly heavy, but I, I, you know, I, I really couldn't tell you how much they weighed now. It, it, but of course, when they got the 90s, that was quite a bit heavier shell. But I never had to mess with one of those because I, I was never in a T26. I never, we had one per company. And, and that was just the one that uh, Bob Early had and Smix Moyer. We had three main uh, 75 shells, which was the, the HE, which is the high explosive, and the AP which was the armor piercing, and then the APHE, which was, was the, they would pierce and then also explode. So, of course, the 30 caliber was, uh, we had uh, every so often, they had uh, tracers in those, but uh, unless you happen to hit on the side or in the, in the back, uh, or if they were up at an angle where you could hit them underneath, uh, you couldn't penetrate with them. Even when we got the souped up the 76, when they come out with the 76, it still wasn't effective. And until we got the T26 with the 90 millimeter, we were just dead ducks, <laughs> just about, if you fought uh, tank to tank. We were interviewed in uh, Cologne by a, a lady uh, correspondent. And it was in all the papers back home. And it, and it said, the one that she asked us about the tanks. And I remember Bob Early saying, uh, our tanks weren't worth a drop of hot water on a hot on stove. And they said, chimed in, Corporal Charles Miller says, it makes us feel real bad to think our people at home think we got the best equipment when we know we haven't. We knew we didn't have the, <laughs> the, the best equipment. The only thing you could do is, is hope that you got the, uh, the right shot at the right time and, and could penetrate. Uh, and that is until, let's say, we got the, the T26. And, of course, with this 90 millimeter uh, uh, and the, our, our armament. Now, the, the, the thing, we could, we could move our turret 360 degrees. We could, and our, our tanks moved faster. We had more maneuverability. You could outmaneuver a, a German tank. And they, they didn't have 360 on there. They could only turn so far with their with their guns. It was uh, around January sometime, about the 7th of January. We were moving from Grand Sart, Belgium, to Sart, Belgium. And we were going in line across the field. And the first thing that happened, we, we hit, a, hit a mine, and it blew the, it flattened two bogies and took the rubber off a number of the tracks, treads, but we were able to keep going. But then we got further in and we were, I, as I remember it, we were trying to, we saw a tank beside a barn in this edge of this town. And that's what I was laying on when uh, we got a shell. All I knew was a flash came down in front of my eyes and a shell came right and took a hole, about like that out of the cupola ring threw the hatches open and took my tank commander's head off about right through there and then went on back and took the uh, the anti-aircraft gun off and uh, and of course he fell down on my back and I didn't know what was going on of course normally when you when you got hit 
they got your range and they hit you to your burn. And time I could look around, my assistant driver had bailed out, the loader had gone through the hatch and out his hatch, and finally got the tank commander off my back, Bill Hay was his name, and I crawled out, and we had a basket on the back of the tank, Bill, on where we kept a duffel bags there and carried back there. I was planning on rolling off of it onto the back of the tank and down, and I'd done something that I had trained never to do, was leave the gun turned to the to one side or the other. And when I rolled off, I went clear to the ground. Of course, the snow was yay deep, about two feet deep, and it broke our, broke my fall. And I uh, scurried, they were shooting the 30 tower, they were shooting machine gun fire around all around the tank, and I was able to crawl around to back the tank. And when the tank started backing up, it almost ran over me now, I realized I had left the gun over the driver's hatch. And he couldn't get his hatch open. So that was something I, it was never, it was a no-no as far as I'm concerned, but I had goofed. And, but he started, they left it in power traverse. So when he started backing up, uh, the, it jiggled around and the turret come around and he was able to open the hatch and come out too. But I, uh, ran with the rest of us, we ran down to a, to a, um, bed, a little stream there and went up this bed stream. And I got, of course, I got back to where our, the other tanks were, and uh, everybody thought I was, I they was trying to get to medical school. I thought I was hurt because I was just, of course, my back and everything. I was just solid blood from, from uh, Bill Hay. You shouldn't, but you, you, you just lose it all there for, for a minute there. You just don't know what's going on, and, and all you can think about is getting out of the tank. Maybe I should have taken control and, and kept firing the gun, you know, but, uh, when, when, when you hit like that and you have somebody dead on your back, you, all you can think about is just getting out of the, out of the tank. The only, only thing we had was what, at the, when you rode in the tank was you had a crash helmet, what we call a crash helmet, but that was mainly for banging around so you didn't, didn't hurt your head. But as far as protection, no, there was no protection. You just wore your regular clothes, and so yeah, there was nothing, nothing different to protect you. I don't know exactly how to explain it, but everybody was for everybody, and 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 you stuck together, and uh, you knew that that guy was going to be there when when you needed him. Each crew member knew what what their job was, and and they were trained to do it, and and they did it. it is, we didn't, I don't think I was ever in a crew that I had any any uh, a problem with uh, each one of the members doing what they what they're supposed to do. Oh, I lost a lot of friends, yeah. As far as just the uh, immediate tank crew was, was Bill Hay, of course. And then uh, at Blatzheim, Germany, when we were going uh, on the Cologne Plains, which they told us that was the tank country, we were really going to be... Uh, first thing that happened that day was that we were lined up and they to pull out of this on at a line formation from the edge of this town going in to, to go into Blantsheim. And uh, there was a bunch of slit trenches out. They wanted to clear it out, and they sent the B Company, which generally worked with us, their light tank company. And they sent their M5s out there to clean those out, which they did, except they were all knocked out the whole platoon, just one after another, before they could even do anything hardly. And uh, then they, they gave us the—we were supposed to— 
uh, not move out until uh, on our left, there was a farmhouse out there and uh, all the buildings out there. And there was a bunch of unit, uh, a unit of tiger, or I don't know whether a tiger, but anyway, a German unit over there. And we, F Company was supposed to be over and, and take care of them before we moved out. They gave us the order to move out. And as soon as we pulled out, they said, so stop. Says that hadn't been taken, pull back. So we pulled back. And so then when they finally said, well, that's taken, go, we pulled out. Well, they knew exactly where we were. The, the, the clone planes weren't where we <laughs> It wasn't good tank country after all because their, their anti-aircraft guns or their 88s, which was dual-purpose anti-aircraft or tank, they had them dug in the ground and had camouflage nets over them. And you, you'd look it out there and you couldn't see them anywhere. And they'd fire and you, you wouldn't even know where it's coming from. And they started hitting our tanks and we lost... Uh, I don't know how many we lost when we first came out, and uh, we finally threw all the smoke we had. We had we had that's another round we had. We had a smoke round, and we threw that, and then we had a little uh, uh, mortar is built up in the side of the turret, and we'd fired all our smoke mortar shells out of there, and and we came back, and then they gave it. They got uh, another company with us. F Company then came with us, and we we had more tanks, in, and we went out and went on across, except we were about halfway across the field and our, our driver didn't see the the bomb crater and we ran right off into a bomb crater, nose straight, straight down. And what happens is when it turns over like you got all this stuff in there sponsoring your tank and all that stuff fell out on me and I had to get it off me and then turn, it was my responsibility to turn off the main ignition, main power switches, which was behind me. time I got all that done, the whole crew had bailed out, and I, I was the only one in there. But I got out, and as soon as I got out, I could see why we they bailed out, because we, we couldn't have got out without a, a maintenance t a T2, what is called a T2, to, to pull us out. And uh, I, I climbed up out of the hole and found the rest of the crew laying on the ground behind the big... Uh, they, they Germans used to uh, dig their potatoes, and they put them in piles and cover them with straw and everything. And uh, they were laying behind that pile of potatoes, and I laid down next, right next to my tank commander, and the other rest of the crew was down at my feet. And uh, and there was another crew of F Company. Uh, I, I've never known why I knew it was F Company, but I've always said it was F Company. They were just a short distance from us. They had lost their tank and was out on the ground, and we got a shell come in and hit them right in, where, in the midst of them. And I can still see this fella getting up and starting to run, and going, dropping to his knees and turning around, looked like he was looking back for help. And he didn't have sign of a face. He was just, his whole face was gone. And that same shell, uh, I had, when it hit, I didn't know it, it hit, it hit Jupe, my, uh, Ray Jules was his name, uh, laying next to me. And uh, I told Joe, who was a driver, I said, we ought to get, we ought to get out of here. Let's, Get away from this area because there, there, and was, uh, there's a lot of infantry walking across at that time, coming across the field there. So we got up and it was getting up, and I nudged Jupe to get him to come, and he didn't move. And I, I looked, and he got a big hole in his head. He'd, he'd been hit, and he was dead. And Joe, he'd been hit, and he had a hole in his crash helmet where a piece of shrapnel had hit flatways, and he had a big knot on his head. And he was dizzy, and he had some shrapnel in his shoulder. And but I, we got up, and and I helped him, and we and he leaned on me, and we got clear back to the town we came from, and the rest of the crew. 
And uh, after we got back over there, I kept having trouble with my ankle. It kept something that'd give way on me every once in a while. And I kept looking. I had overshoes on, over rubber overshoes, five buckle overshoes over my boots. And finally, I undid them and peeled them down. Well, the, the hole popped open on my, on my, and I didn't. And I saw the, the blood down in my shoe. And finally, I took my boot off, and it was full of blood. And I had I'd gotten a shrapnel in my ankle, and that was it. But it was going inside in the ankle, and it didn't hurt except when I, you know, when I got it was so small. The piece was that it. it uh, but they took us back to to Stolberg to the uh, medics in Stolberg. Joe took Joe and I back there, and uh, they probed around and got the, the shrapnel out of his shoulder. Uh, but they couldn't couldn't get at it in my ankle, and they just probed around, put a bandaid on it, and sent us back. <laughs> I went through the rest of the war with it, and then after the war was over, we moved back to a little town on Munster by Deberg, which is close to Frankfurt. And uh, I kept having trouble, I, it, and my ankle would give way with me at times, and especially when I wore boots. And uh, so I finally went to the first sergeant and told him, I, you know, I'm either let me wear low-top shoes or let's get, get that out of there. So they sent me back to the medics, and they took x-ray and found it, and I went to the hospital in Frankfurt, and they removed it. And I was in the hospital about 10 days, but they got I've, I have trouble with it now, but I just uh, cut the tendons on two toes, but that was all. The next day after I was hit and uh, Bill Hay was killed, the uh, graves registration came up and they removed the body. But they didn't have to do the cleaning up, of course. And we we had to clean up the tank. Like Bill's brains were laying in my seat and blood all over. We had to take all the all the all the shells out and wipe them down, clean the blood off of them. And the radio was covered completely with blood. It was gruesome, and uh, I I didn't I never even talk about it for years. And after I come home, I never even talked about it. But you know, you finally finally get over it and talk about it now. No no problem. But uh, for a long time, you didn't. It was in your mind all the time. You didn't you didn't talk about it. Uh, but when we got back to maintenance to have it work, to have the tracks and the bogies and everything fixed, uh, I uh, found an old blanket and an old shoulder hat and, I, uh, and some cardboard, and I traced my foot and made a pattern uh, out of cardboard, and then I uh, made convinced to sew, and I made, made me some boots, which came up uh, all about halfway up my foot. And I did away with my boots because they, they was tight, and I, I just wore those in my overshoes. And that just made all the difference in the world. My feet, I didn't have trouble getting my feet getting cold after that. And also while I was there, I made a, made a hood for myself. I, I took a, a shelter half and a blanket and, and made a square and then cut it down and tacked it to my back and, and kept my head warmer too. But this was, uh, they didn't, they actually, they didn't, we, I don't, they weren't prepared for it, for winter over there. They didn't issue anything, any warm clothes. We didn't have, long, we didn't have long johns or any at that time uh, when we first went. In fact, I had sent home, uh, my mother had, had taken some, some old uh, track, track pants, you know, the one with the elastic in the bottom ring. Of course, it didn't have a uh, fly in it, so she put a, a fly in them for me, and I, I, that's what kept me warm. One night we were was in this little town there, 
And uh, we were building. We got out of the tanks for living and staying in, in these houses at that time. But I had uh, one crew man, as in my crew, uh, started crying and just going on in that night. And his feet were frozen. And I, I finally went up. Uh, I went to CP and, and barred the half track and come down, picked him up, and took him back to the medics. And they, and in the medics, they they just the rooms were just guys were laying on the floor. All of them had had frozen feet and fingers and. And uh, I never, we never did see this boy. He never did come back to us. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello. We have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Actually, I was in uh, the first tank, like I say, was was hitting the bulge. And uh, the reason I got out of that was I uh, that made me tank commander. But then the the uh, I was I was kid. I was the youngest. In fact, my driver was one of the old timers that had been in been in the the unit since it'd been started. And uh, he used to kid me like a baby. He'd go out and loot and bring me back dolls and stuff like that, you know, and and. He didn't like the idea of me being up the tank commander. So he went, first sergeant says he went, he didn't think so well, well you're the, he says, well, you can be the first, I didn't matter to me. He said, you can be the tank commander. But I had uh, a friend of mine who was in the first tank I'd been in, uh, Ray, uh, the Gerald was the one that got killed next. Uh, he, he was a tank commander and he needed a gunner. So I transferred to his tank. And of course then he was killed in the next action. And uh, I went to another tank after that. And I made it all the way through under that tank then, right to the end of the war. We had a, a liaison assigned to each company from the Air Corps, and they had a special radio where they could talk to their, their pilots. And uh, he rode right along with us and, and communicated with airplanes when, when we were getting their, their support. And it was really good when you could when you'd see one of those P 47s dive right ahead of you. And you'd hear a big bomb boom and go up over. You, you knew, rest assured, when you got up there, there was going to be a tank laying on the side there. Because they, they, really, they really did the job. The more you, more you fired a gun, even though you, your tank commander was, was estimating ranges, you could yourself could knew after you'd fired and, and, uh, what that range was and knew you, know, you, could, you could estimate it yourself. Uh, it's so much different now than, than like the tanks now. They have they have a laser 
and everything, which we didn't have. Everything had to be done by eyesight for laser, uh, for not for laser, for for uh, estimating ranges. Well, now I don't think I, w- I would trade it for anything. I, I think, uh, uh, say, I didn't enjoy it at the time, but I sure in- enjoyed the the guys that I met and the guys, the f- friendliness and everything, and, and the the. Uh, Say we still meet, and we, we it, it, it's it's it, I don't know what it, what it is about it, but uh, uh, we enjoy meeting and talking every year about it. You wonder what happened to some of these guys that that you never heard from after the war, and you know knew what happened to them, and uh, and of course they there's guys that I've wanted to go see, and of course it, now they've passed away. And uh, you, you'll never see them now. And you, you just wonder what, you know, you should have gone and back when you were younger and got together and enjoyed their company and everything. I don't exactly how to put it other, other than, you know, the, the, what we went through and, and uh, lived through it and uh, how close we were as a, as a unit. The uh, tank... The five men in a tank to start with, and of course, in your platoon, five tank crews, and, and of course, third of the company. We everybody knew everybody in the company just about it. It was, it uh, of course, when you started getting replacements, a lot of times you didn't get too acquainted with them before something would happen, you know. And so there, but uh, a lot of those, they all made it through too, and you, you became good, good friends. And it uh, just continued. That was Corporal Chuck Miller. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rulhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.